poetry for my four little children one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character that's an explosive mix isn't it Knock him off of him if that's what you need to do. And now, the safety zone. Good morning, Mike. We're on another episode of the safety zone. And how are you this morning? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Good, good. As we all know, it just um, first we have the pandemic, and that's been a continual, ongoing crisis, and obviously just has uprooted so many normalcies. And now we have just the horrible images that we've seen, everyone has seen, of the death of George Floyd, and and now the police officers that are being charged. And I know most people, including myself, seen it. It's just kind of shocking to see this man pleading for his life. And the reason we're addressing this subject is, of course, your background as a police officer and your whole family lineage of being a police officer. And we certainly know there's wonderful police officers out there that, that work hard every day and involved in their communities. But, but we see the riots, we see people, they're angry. And as far as the anger goes, rightfully so. And we've seen it just in this past few weeks, African-Americans dying, whether it's at the hands of the police or by white civilians. And it's just a topic that, that is really timely. And you have some really interesting thoughts and insight, I think, into this problem. And so we want to talk about that today. So when you saw the images of George Floyd, what first came to your mind or what were you thinking? Makes you want to puke. My first reaction, and typically when I see clips that come in from the media, your first reaction is you have to tell yourself, okay, we got to keep this in context. We don't know everything that's going on, but I'm going to tell you what, When I viewed that clip, I don't need any more context. When you are on top of somebody with your knee in their neck and you have your hand in your pocket, that person is not resisting. You have that completely under control. So, and I'm a guy that's been around law enforcement since I was a little kid. My dad was a police officer, my grandfather, my younger brother, I got an older cousin, my wife. So I've been around police. I've been around good police. These are criminals. So let's just make that clear. This guy's a murderer in Minneapolis, not a cop. But as we look at that, I still was slack-jawed when I saw that. Mm -hmm. To think we're still in this place 20 some years after I started in law enforcement, of course, I left over 21 years ago and started consulting business and doing a lot of work in policing. Still, it's amazing to me how shocking and how sometimes little progress we have made in terms of changing some of the culture within law enforcement. And that's saying a lot from a seasoned police officer, someone who has been in law enforcement to one degree or the other as a detective and and your whole family lineage, your wife. And I think that's the shocking reality. And and, and maybe for some of us, it's a, a catapult into realizing that there are still issues in this nation. And maybe we haven't been alert to that of racism and of unfair treatment to our African-American brothers and sisters. Interestingly enough, the officer that had his knee on the neck was a trainer. And two of the other officers, according to the news that we've been reading, were rookies. I know one was like four days on the job. The other one, I believe they said it was like his, his first actual going out on the job for three hours. Now they're saying that they said something. And we're told to, that no, to stay as is. So what is 
and I know this is a thing we're going to be talking about over more than one podcast, but how interesting that you have two rookies that this man was a trainer. What does that tell us? And his background, he had some problems, didn't he? Yeah. Well, let me put a little side note in here. I'm relying on media reports mm-hmm. yes. to give me background on this officer that was on top of Mr. Floyd. But it appears they got these from his personnel file. But if you look at the information, I mean, you're talking about an officer from what I saw this morning that had 12 issues related to use of force. This was the third police action shooting he had been involved in. And that just because it's the third police action shooting by itself doesn't mean anything in that context alone. That's just could be just the nature of where this officer worked, the type of position he had within a department. The things that stick out to me when you see the number of complaints that had been made against this officer it really goes to what the root problem is here. The root problem is recruiting. It always has been. How do you recruit the right kind of people into law enforcement? I get it. We're seeing huge reactions, and we should be seeing huge reactions to this. Protest, anger. Anger is righteous when done correctly. Looting, destroying, hurting people, that's not righteous anger. When I think of righteous anger, I think of Jesus flipping the tables over in the Mm -hmm. temple, right? That's righteous anger. Martin Luther King Jr., I mean, I think of that anger and then pushed into positives. What scares me is if this becomes highly politicized, we'll see very quick reactions that go to the the symptoms of the problem, but not the root of the Mm -hmm. problem. We've seen this in school violence. Anytime it becomes more of a political response to what's happening. And if I could compare this to school violence, so much focus on the issue of how do we keep a bad guy out? We lock down the school. We, do, we try to do everything we can to keep them away from shooting our kids, but we have to open the door and let our kids out of the building. So we're not dealing with the root cause of that problem. What we're doing is we're just trying to barricade ourselves from the problem. My fear is if we're not careful we're going to see that happen here because we've seen it over and over again. I don't see anybody talking about the recruiting, who we're bringing into our organization, making sure we're bringing the right kind of people in. What I'm seeing is reactions like we need to defund the police departments or just totally change the way policing is done. Well, I don't know what that means. That could be heading the right direction. I just need to see how that's being defined. Mm -hmm. But The root cause here is not changing, can an officer shoot at a moving vehicle? That's one of the things I saw recently, some groups that were advocating these absolute policies. My wife is five foot three, probably weighs 110 pounds soaking wet, spent 20 years as a police officer up near Chicago. One of the last years she was on the job, responded to an armed bank robbery, pulled into the parking lot, had exited a vehicle. As the armed robber got into his vehicle and was trying to flee that location, he attempted to run her over. They fired shots at him in defense of their life. So sometimes we think about these policies and in relation Mm -hmm. to a horrible incident, they might make a lot of sense, but that doesn't stop what Mm -hmm. this officer did to Mr. Floyd because he's a criminal. He's not going to follow those policies. He's not clearly not following policies within the department over the last 19 years. I think he was a police officer. Now, 
you ask a question and you say, well, how is he a training officer? No kidding. You go through an academy and then you're going to go out and you're going to become, uh, go into some kind of field training program. And that's really where you learn. I can remember when I came out of the academy, I can remember the first day on the job. My thinking was when I showed up at roll call, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'd read a lot of books. We've been through a lot of different scenarios, but nothing prepares you for reality. And I can remember my training officers. We walked to the car that day. He kind of looked at me and he said, forget everything you just learned the last six months. I'll teach you what you need to know. And he's a great guy. There's some truth to that. But if you look at these young officers in this case, I understand just recently out of the academy, and this is the training officer. Eh, shocking. Not really. A lot of times you see this in police agencies promoted because you've been there a long time or you've earned your stripes. And so now it's not about whether or not you're qualified. Matter of fact, I had a lot of leaders that I would say got promoted because they weren't very good at being an officer. So we thought, well, get them out of that. We'll just promote them and they'll be your supervisor. But I've seen field training officers when I was in Nashville. One, I can remember distinctly didn't have a driver's license. Why? Well, he didn't have a driver's license because he had all these unpaid tickets and traffic issues. Oh. And so they, they, they made him a, a training officer because he'd always have a rookie with him that could drive his car. So yeah, we've got to focus wow. on what the root problem is here that needs to be dealt with as opposed to kind of some of the symptomatic issues we see. That makes sense. Everybody has a recruiting system. And everybody has a means of sifting, right, through applicants and finding the right person, the right niche. You would think in a, in a role as a police officer that that would be so heightened because of the interaction with the public on a daily basis. Yeah. I had mentioned to somebody yesterday, I said, that there's a lot of different root problems here that we're dealing with. And for anybody to not try to understand from a racial or cultural perspective, what's going on is wrong. I had mentioned to whomever I was talking to, I said, when I look in the rearview mirror and see a police car, my reaction is very different than my black friends who may look in the rearview mirror and see a police car. And I'll be honest with you, Having been around cops my whole life and half my family are cops, my heart still pings when I look in a rearview mm -hmm. mirror and mine, see mine a does. cop car. And generally <laughs> because, I uh, yeah, I'm, you know, not always running the speed limit. So, you know, <laughs> there may be a valid reason why my heart pings. But I used to mention to our detectives all the time when we were working with domestic violence, when you walk into that home, you have to check your view of what is normal to you and what your sphere of understanding is, you check that at the door. Because as soon as you cross that threshold, if you don't check that at the door and try to understand where this victim's coming from, anything he or she says to you is going to make absolutely no sense. So we do have to understand. We have to be empathetic. That doesn't mean I can understand that. I can't. I really, I've not been in that position to completely understand that. But I have to try to understand that and be empathetic with that. So there's a lot going on here, but this has been going on for a long time. And I think this is the time we have to really step mm -hmm. back, take a deep breath and say, we're going to go to the root of this problem 
and we're going to begin to solve it. Because if we don't, we're going to run the risk of just throwing out some policies and procedures. If we're still bringing the wrong people into our organization, nothing's going to change. They're not going to adhere to whatever the policies are. Why would they? There's certain professions that the standard that we set for who we bring into that organization has to be extraordinarily high. We do a lot of work with schools across the country in vetting and recruiting, Mm -hmm. making sure the right people, both volunteers and employees coming in those doors. What are we trying to keep away? We're trying to keep away sex offenders, people that would hurt our children. In law enforcement, our standard of care for who we hire has to be much higher than the standard that we've set over the last 25 or 30 Mm -hmm. or maybe a hundred years. And there's just certain professions that we can't make mistakes when we're hiring. And I've been through these processes. I went through a process within a very large metropolitan police department and I didn't get hired. And then I got hired in Nashville and rose through the ranks and helped start this large program. And, And when I left, the same department that did not hire me brought me in and paid me a lot of money to do consulting work to help them with their administrative team to develop a domestic violence program within this department. I can distinctly remember on one break talking to one of the police administrators and he was a super guy. And he said something to me after hearing me introduce myself, he's like, why didn't you ever apply with us? And I looked at him, I said, Daryl, I did, but you wouldn't hire me. And he, he laughed and he looked at me and he goes, we have no idea. And I was like, wow, that is so telling. But they're so concerned with having a standard process, ask everybody the same questions. You have 15 minutes in, sit in front of the panel, ask these questions 15 minutes out. What if I say something that should cause you to go, hmm, what did you just say? I'm going to go this direction now. I'm going to dig a little deeper. Right. So a lot of this was psychological testing. I mean, there's just so many recruiting tools. And I'm not sure that law enforcement is spending money wisely. They're spending a lot of money in recruiting. I'm not sure if they're spending it wisely to make sure they're getting the right people in the organization. Someone who wants to be a police officer, what kind of people does that attract? Obviously, again, there's wonderful police officers, but is it a magnet to a particular type of person? Is there any sort of protocol on that? Yeah. And and let me just say right now, 95% of police officers, Mm -hmm. fantastic human beings. Their job today is so much more complex and difficult because of this and everything else. I can't even understand that. I talk to my brother consistently and he's a police administrator, but you're exactly right. What I learned as a young detective is this job can attract people that have issues with power and control. How did I learn that? Well, it wasn't some kind of epiphany because I'm a brilliant guy because I'm not. (laughs) When we started this domestic violence unit within the city of Nashville, one of the things that happened, not immediately, it was probably a year into this program because most victims who were married to a police officer did not immediately come to our office. They were going to watch us for a while. They were going to say, hey, is this just another one of these programs the police department's throwing out there and it'll be a fad that'll last two or three years and then it'll disappear because I can't chance my life walking in those doors only to find out that they're not going to really help me and they're not set up to help me. So it took about a year 
But as we used community partners in the media to promote and get the word out and show the results and things that were happening, we started and it turned into almost once a month, we were investigating one of our officers. We were in an enormously large department. We had 1,200 police officers. I can remember coming in on a Sunday afternoon for my shift, walked into the office. Officer was sitting in the lobby that I went to the academy with. And he's like, hey, Mike, hey, how you doing? And I walked past him and I probably got five steps past him. And I was like, I've got to find a place to hide because I know something's going on here. And I was the first one in the door. And the next thing I know, my captain brings me into her office and here's what we got. Horrible abuse situation. He was mm. a police officer. And so I began to investigate this. We end up turning it over to the district attorney's office. At that time, the district attorney's office had not got their domestic violence unit up and running. And so they didn't have special trained prosecutors. So they were really looking at hey, can we give him some kind of retirement? He's got post traumatic stress. He was in the first Gulf War. And I remember going, No way. I've been on the department six years and you're going to make me work 25 years for a pension and this guy's beating his wife. We're going to let him pension out after six years. No way. I'm not game for that. That's not going to work here. I don't agree. Mm. I totally disagree. What's it matter though? I'm a detective, right? I don't have the power to make those decisions. What happened is he was released on bail. The system, the criminal justice system was dragging its feet because this was uncomfortable for them. Mm -hmm. And what happened is he went over to confront his estranged wife. She was staying at her parents. Her father got in between them. The officer ends up shooting and killing himself. Thankfully, nobody else was hurt in that scenario. But we're talking about he was locking her in closets. He had sodomized her. We're not talking about he may have pushed or shoved her. We're talking about serious violence. What we later found out is there were 911 calls to his house before he was hired. How do you miss that in a background check? Well, you don't miss that in a background check. Who overlooked that? Sometimes we're just overlooking things or not understanding things, but this position affords so much power and control. Yes. If I'm not really vetting people to understand, every police officer everywhere in the United States that's going through a hiring process is going to sit down in front of a group of police administrators at some point, And they're going to ask the one question they ask everybody. Why do you want to be a police officer? Everybody's going to say, cause I want to help people. My response is no. Why do you really want to be a police officer? I've got to be able to answer that question. They're not going to tell me that 95%. That's exactly what they want to do. They want to come in. They want to help people. They want to work in the community. They want to solve problems. I'm worried about the 5% or less right. that are wanting to come into this organization that have issues with power. They have issues with control. Now, all of a sudden, I'm going to give you power and control. People have to do what you say. You have a gun. You have this authority. You have the ability to arrest people based on probable cause. Well, what is probable cause? Probably happened. And so it's a low threshold. So that's a ton of power. And yes. so that's why folks that have issues with power and control are extraordinarily attracted to this yes. job. Yes. So it can attract just like sex offenders are attracted to positions where children are at. Yes. If yes. you're the path of least resistance, you got problems. And I'm telling you right now, folks that have issues with power and control, they are extraordinarily 
interested in becoming police officers. Mm. The one question I was asked when I resigned from Nashville, I took a training position for the state of Indiana for about a year to help start some programs for all the police coming through the academy. But before I left, I had an officer ask me one night, he said, you really want to give this up? And it was a perplexing question to me because my response of course, I'm a bit sarcastic. My response was, okay, what am I giving up? I make very little money. I work nights and weekends and I work most holidays and I have to wear a pager. Some of you don't even know what a pager is, but yeah, I, I had to wear a pager, which meant at two o'clock in the morning, if something happened, I had to crawl out of bed, get dressed and go investigate a crime. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I'm giving up a lot, but you know what? He was really asking me if I wanted to give up the badge and everything that it symbolized. But for me, the symbol, what the badge symbolized, I was working two jobs mm -hmm. and barely making ends meet. And the stress of this position was driving me bonkers because I was a problem solver by nature mm -hmm. and we were more of a triage and move on kind of organization. To think about that in, and I agree, I'm 95% of, of police officers are wonderful people, but you know, when you get 5% that aren't, they can do damage. And when you think of the power, kind of like with a, a domestic abuser, right? Their mode is the same thing, control and power. And, and you do think about that really as a police officer with the badge is that you do have that. And to really recognize, it's interesting to me that there's kind of a sign in what you were saying once a month, a police officer, as far as uh, domestic violence and abuse. But that makes sense if you're driven by power and authority to be attracted to being an officer. And if you've got people that have a problem with people with a different color skin or different ethnicity, that's an explosive mix, isn't it? It absolutely is. And what needs to happen here is much like what we did with this special unit in Nashville. First program like this in the United States. So it became a model for the country. When I talk to organizations, I will tell them the key wasn't just that the police department said, we're now going to treat domestic violence as a crime and we're going to address this. The key to the Nashville program is it became a community-based program. That sounds so simplistic, right? Like we're going to bring in healthcare, social service programs where women would stay in shelters, church and ministries. Anybody that had connection with a potential victim now became part of this program. Well, I can tell you that was a huge paradigm shift for the police department because we weren't used to communicating with other groups. I don't need you to solve my problem. I'm not a social worker. I'm a cop. I arrest people and then we let the system do whatever the system's going to do. But it became a almost like a wheel the police department was the hub and you had all these spokes coming out and it would never have been successful without all the community programs. Same thing's got to happen here. Police cannot view themselves as when you pull out of roll call, you, it's not like you're going to battle and to war. If that's the mentality when you hit the street, that means you have an adversarial position against the community. I learned very quickly. I worked in public housing in Nashville for about three years before I became a detective. I can literally remember, and I grew up in a small town of 600 people. You could not, it felt like you dropped me in another part of the world. Like I had parachuted in and I had never been in an environment like that. I mean, there was times I was standing in a home and I was thinking, man, this is a long way from Waveland, Indiana. What I learned 
And I have to admit, and I'm sad to admit this, but the way I was trained, it was war. We're heading into this public housing and we've got to stomp this crime out and everybody's against us. You know what? That was a lie. 95% of the people or more living in that public housing were being held hostage. A lot of times they're being held hostage by people that didn't even live there. It was just a, an environment that they could come in and sell drugs and commit the crimes that they were committing and control. And the residents stayed inside. They were scared to death. So we've got to engage the community. And the church has to become involved here. As I look at communities like here in Indiana, where I'm at, Indianapolis, we've had this huge problem with increasing murder rates in the city of Indianapolis. This is not just a policing problem. It takes the whole community coming together or you're yes. never going to solve it. Yes. But you've got to have police administrators that aren't just saying that, but truly believe that, that are really community activists within the department. I used to tell our officers all the time, if we work together and solve the domestic violence call that you respond to, selfishly, you're not going to go back to that house again. We've solved it. And we averaged about twenty to 24,000 domestic violence calls a year in Nashville. Mm -hmm. And so you had to start with a solutions mentality. Are you going to change police departments in the next two months by talking what we're talking about right here. This is going to take some time and yeah. you've got to get engaged. But if the community doesn't come together, mm -hmm. which is pushing for this change, mandating, mm -hmm. but understanding it's not getting rid of police. We want chaos. Is that what we're looking for? It's got to be arm in arm is how yes. you solve this. I'm going to tell you what, I can name a hundred police officers right now. If I pick up the phone and call them one by one, every one of them is going to feel the same sickening feeling that I felt when they saw that video. They are disgusted by what has happened here. And so we've got to get police engaged in being solution driven versus just reacting to or thinking simply yes. only fighting crime is our mission. No. Your mission is not to just fight crime. Your mission is to prevent. Let's prevent these things. Why somebody didn't knock that officer off Mr. Floyd. I don't care if you're a rookie. I don't care as a rookie because it's realistic, but I don't care as a rookie if you now, because you have no civil service protection. Most rookies have no civil service protection until they've come through the entire training program. I don't care. As a human being, when exactly. you're witnessing, you are required to take action. Don't ask him, hey, should we maybe get off him? He can't breathe. Knock him off of him if that's what you need to do. This is a human response. Everybody innately as a decent human being would have said, I got to stop this. I've right. got to stop. But what's happening here is wrong. And it's okay to say that. I'll be honest with you. We were pigeonholed very early on. I heard a comment on the street one time from an officer on a call. And basically what he was saying to me is, ah, we have to be careful of you guys. You investigate police. You know what my response was? I said, ah, oh, no, that's not true. I don't investigate police. I said, I arrest criminals. Oh. Sometimes they wear a badge, yep. but I'm going to tell you wow. what, I'm not lowering true. my standard because mm -hmm. I got a whole family full of great police officers. Right. Nothing dis I find more despicable than somebody hiding behind a badge that really is a criminal. Oh, you've said so many things that are, to me, so impactful. And, and just the fact of the attitude 
the tone of the adversarial, what you were saying, like going into a war zone or, and, and I get that you might be in a place where there's crime and there's a lot of things going, but that adversarial role, if you've got that mentality going in, it really does change how you think, doesn't it? In a situation. It's I mean, a mindset. A, yeah. When I started in policing in the early 90s, we were starting to see more women joining police departments. And there was a lot of belief with older police administrators might not be the job for this young lady. She probably ought to be doing something else. Again, I go back to my wife, 5'3", 110 pounds. <laughs> there was this belief, right, that this was a strength and yeah. fighting and you got to be tough and aggressive. What I learned very quickly. I had about four detectives I worked extraordinarily close with. One of them was a female that I worked a patrol with. And then we came into the investigative unit together. But I could see her on calls diffuse situations quicker than anybody I worked with. Why? She didn't have pride issues. And so I've told police for 20 years, I said, almost every scuffle I got into, I got into it because some officer on the scene made some comment that inflamed the situation. And the next thing you know, it's out of control. And now we're having to wrestle and fight and I said almost every time, with the exception of one that I remember, every time. But I said what I learned over time was as women came into policing, it wasn't a pride issue for them. They didn't take it personal when somebody got mouthy on the scene. Guess what? People can be mouthy all day long. It's a way that you treat people and talk to people and how you can diffuse situations. That really is a display of somebody that is a fantastic police officer that can use their mouth and not just their hands to be able to diffuse situations. Exactly, because really it's that power under control right? You may have a badge, you may have even lawfully abilities to do certain things, but to me, it's really the knowing restraint. And like you said, especially if someone's nitpicking or what have you, and not allowing that to escalate. So you really have to be a, um, yeah. almost like a peacekeeper, which originally wasn't that on the police force. I always remember the old term peacekeeper going in. So if you have someone going back to what you said about the 5% and, and this power authority real clincher as far as their personality. And you put that together with this adversarial kind of perspective going into a situation or into a, a neighborhood that you don't understand or whatever the case may be. Hey, you've really got someone who isn't going to be a peacekeeper. You've got someone that is going to go in, right? As a commander, going to command that authority. It's not going to be authority under restraint. Um, and of course, we're not talking about self-defense aspects, but, but it really is yeah. an attitude, isn't it? It's 100% an attitude. I've shared for years that the way you address people, uh, let me be perfectly honest here. There's a certain element in society of criminals that are not going to respond to anything. All they know is violence. I had a friend killed on one of my cases. There's no amount of talking that would have stopped him from going for the weapons in the house that night, trying to hurt us, mm -hmm. officers, him going to the hospital. There's no amount of, hi, can we just kind of diffuse this situation? Right. There's right. a certain element of violent criminal that this doesn't work. But most situations, it is how you communicate. How I talk to you, the way I address you, 
the way I speak, the words I use can have either a agitating impact that really makes this situation more volatile, or it can diffuse the situation. The strangest thing that ever happened to me, and it happened to me, I don't know how many times I arrested somebody, pull into a Sally port and you're taking them out of the car, you're going into the booking process, and at the end of that process, they would look at you almost like you were at an airport saying goodbye to a family member, and they would say, thank you. And I remember one guy said that, and we both looked at each other and laughed. We didn't have to say anything else. What he was saying is, you didn't treat me bad, and I'm not taking this personal. What you did was wrong. I also understood with the family violence that we were dealing with, the vast majority of the solution to this problem was not incarceration. The solution to this problem was extraordinarily well-structured and programs for batterer intervention that could mm -hmm. teach them new ways of dealing with their issues of power and control. And so how I speak, how I talk has a huge impact. I'll be honest with you. I've been pulled over a few times. I like the speed. And <laughs> I got pulled over here recently. My sixth grade daughter was in the car and I was like, here we go. And I saw the lights <laughs> in the rearview mirror. And my sixth grader, she said to me, don't get mouthy. And she, you know, her eyes got big. She's like, don't That's get mouthy. Because sometimes it's like, I'm seeing all these other issues in the community and you're going to stop me for seven over the speed limit. And she knows, don't let your mouth override. And I'm thinking, right. okay, you're 11 and I'm 52. Yeah. Uh, good advice. <laughs> You were saying that um, about the attitude. And again, I know these are such minor things and the thing that we're speaking about, but, but it was the same thing coming to mind at times when I've been pulled over. And what you were saying about the attitude of the officer, the, the demeanor. Hey, let's face it. I mean, I know when I've done something wrong. You're always hoping you don't get caught, right? <laughs> that sounds good, right? But that being said, it's amazing though, because throughout my life, I'm 56. And it's like, okay, so I've been pulled over a few times, but it's like, I had officers that were so pleasant that were just, hey there, that were just very pleasant. And I would kind of smile to myself. Yeah, I had a couple that gave me a warning, you know, or whatever, but I remember them giving me the ticket and me saying, thank you, <laughs> you know, on several yeah. occasions and sitting there thinking, well, not that I'm really thankful for the ticket, but, but they were kind. They were, they weren't demeaning. I didn't feel dehumanized, but, but I've had the opposite where as soon as they came up to my window, harsh, where honestly, it made me feel even uncomfortable. And I'm not, again, trying to put down these I had more of the other experience, but honestly, just right from the get-go, I felt defensive. I felt yeah. like I better walk, you know, don't say anything. And I felt uncomfortable and this is a traffic stop. And how much more that goes with huge incidences or like what we've seen with George Floyd and what other black Americans have experienced. And I thought just the tone of the initial greeting, the initial coming up to your car. And I get having to be cautious for all of us. I don't know what we have in the car and whatever, but it does make a difference in how you respond. Just in my little traffic pullovers, my response was far different when someone was just mm -hmm. like me to a certain degree. You knew they had the authority, but they weren't yeah. overpowering you versus the officer that was harsh and really looking yeah. at you like you were a major criminal and because yeah. you 
you know, had a, the blinker out. Mm -hmm. To me, that would be silly. And so you can only imagine mm -hmm. in situations like with George Floyd and with others yeah. that how different that can be, how the officer addresses that person. That's absolutely. I think there's two things as we wrap up here that, and again, there's a lot more we're going to need to discuss about this yes, because I think yes. we want to get into the solutions. But two things I would mention as you focus on the traffic stops, the vast majority of people in the United States that have any interaction with law enforcement are having them on a traffic stop. And so understanding that that interaction places a lot of seeds in a person's head about how they feel about policing. Now, we do need to understand this is where the community coming together is so critical. Back uh, about the time I left Nashville in the late 90s, started to see these like community policing academies where community leaders could come in, learn more about policing. Understanding sometimes demeanor over how I speak to you because traffic stops can be an extraordinarily dangerous situation for police mm -hmm. officers. A lot of them sure. killed on traffic stops. So the yeah. posturing and the way sure. they approach and how they do it, they may have stopped you for a blinker, but you just robbed a bank or you're wanted. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. understanding from their perspective. But yes. having said that, yes. the reason my daughter said, don't get mouthy is because there have been a few times that I've been pulled over maybe late at night. We were at a basketball tournament. My dad was with me, retired from the state police. My wife, we're a carload of cops. <laughs> and the first thing the officer did when he walked up to the window, he said, what have you had to drink? Well, my first reaction was six Mountain Dews. And I said it probably just like that. But you know why I said it like that? Because I was sitting here thinking, he's made an assumption about me because I'm driving a vehicle at 1130 at night and he thinks I'm out drinking and driving. Well, can you imagine? That's not real personal. It's a little personal. So I took it a little personal. Now imagine a scenario where you feel like you're being stopped because of your color. That is very personal. And so understanding how we communicate, how we talk, how we interact. If there's any parting word I would give here today, we've got to hire people that are extraordinarily comfortable in themselves. Because if they have issues of power, they have issues of control. If they're not comfortable with themselves, then when we put a little heat on them, I said, you don't know what a frog's going to do until you drop them in a boiling pot of water. Same thing with a lot of these police. Well, I'm going to tell you what, we better figure out how they're going to react when we dump them in a pot of boiling water, because you've got to be comfortable with yourself. If you're not, then your reaction when things become a little adversarial. I'm going to tell you what, people said some vile things to me as an officer, but I was big enough to understand they were talking to my uniform and not to me. They don't know me. They don't know me. You've got to understand that. And if I'm inadequate in terms of how I feel about myself, my first reaction then is going to be to respond to that. And yes. so recruiting, 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 that's where we've got mm -hmm. to start getting the right people from the community interested in law enforcement. I think we're driving people away from it that have, well, have no interest in law enforcement because of how difficult this job is, but we've got to get the right people interested and the right people involved and the right people leading these police departments. Mm. Well, thank you, Mike, for just really for your brilliant insight because um, most people don't have that police background to be able to look at both sides. And of course, we just continually pray for solutions 
or our black brethren, that they shouldn't have to live in fear. And, and we know the anger is legitimate. And we also pray for solutions, peaceful solutions. So there aren't more injuries and more disasters piled on and piled on. So a um, lot to think about, lot to pray about, but we thank you for your insight. And I know we're gonna be addressing this issue again because there's just so much that we need to start solving in our nation. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks, Melinda. This podcast was sponsored by Safe Hiring Solutions. See us at safehiringsolutions.com.